want you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look tonight at the last portion of that one long sentence, beginning with verse 3 that extends through verse 14. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. The whole context is quite simply this. God is, or Paul, I should say, is kind of pulled back the curtain a bit and given us some visibility of God's master plan, what God is doing from his point of view. And his master plan is to restore all of creation. And his master plan starts with the restoration of mankind and starts with the formation of the church. And we see the whole theme of this epistle, this letter, is unity in the church. And we see in these first several verses how God forms the church, how he brings the church into existence, into being. The church is the object of his great, great love. And you and I, as members of his church, the body of Christ, are objects of God's great redemptive love, his restorative love. If you have ever felt insignificant, if you've ever had a problem with your sense of identity, if you've ever wondered why, if you're important or not, see yourself in this context. God, before the beginning of anything ever created, God, before the beginning of time, knew you and destined that you would be part of the body of Christ. He set his love upon you, the God of the universe. There is no greater way to describe your worth than in the context of those terms. Does that make sense to you? Does that do something for you? I hope it does. Because every time I think about that, every time I think about God's love for me, that he knew me from before the beginning of creation, that he had a plan for me, that just humbles me. That just humbles me. My wife and I were home this afternoon talking and thinking and praying and just saying, Lord, we, we reaffirm our commitment to you. We're thankful that you have given us the privilege of ministering and participating in what you're doing. We were humbled and crying together and praying together this afternoon. It was a very precious time. And it, it all stems from what Paul has revealed, what God has revealed through Paul, is God's incredible love for us. Read with me once again from verses 3 through 14. That, now remember in the Greek, that's one sentence. Paul just begins to uh, praise the Lord. He begins to exalt the Lord. And, and, and one thought leads to a next, and he, he can hardly even take a breath. Uh, he just continues to exalt the Lord for his incredible rich grace towards us and through all the blessings that come to us as his chosen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his great glory. Can you just see how Paul is taken? Uh, the Holy Spirit reveals these great realities to him, one after another after another, and he just begins to reel them off, reel them off. And it's all to the praise of God's glory. Well, let's look at these other verses, verses 11 through 14. And it's in the context of those verses that Paul tells us that the Father has guaranteed us a promise of divine inheritance. Just as we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, as he says in verse 3, and he goes on to enumerate those blessings, he tells us that we were chosen before the creation of the world, that we were predestined to be adopted as sons, that we were redeemed through the blood of Jesus, our sins were forgiven, that we were shown the mystery of his will, and so also we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. One of man's greatest needs is the need for fulfillment, the need for meaning. It's a very real personal need. Much like the need for food, the need for oxygen, we have physiological needs that must be met at regular intervals. And if those physiological needs are not met, then we suffer physiological breakdown. The maximum physiological breakdown is, of course, death. Are you with me? And just as real as those needs are personal needs. And one of the greatest, one of the strongest personal needs that man has is the need for personal fulfillment, the need for meaning, the need for purpose in his life, the need to feel worthwhile. What I'm doing is important. I'm safe, I'm secure. Those kinds of words describe this, this arena, this need for fulfillment. Can anybody relate to that? Can you relate to that? You think about your own life and, uh, you know, people are, they're wondering about it. You talk to, them, talk to people every day and, and you watch and observe their lives. I'm, I'm trained to observe lives. I'm, I'm trained to watch people and to listen. The Word of God has given me uh, wisdom and insight in, into how to counsel people and, and, and direct them. And so I watch people's lives and I, and I see them struggling and hungering and desiring meaning, fulfillment. Wondering about it, wondering if, if they'll ever be fulfilled. 
thinking about their lives in the sense of, will I, will I ever turn out to be what I, what I could be if, if, if everything went just like it was supposed to? We always wonder that, don't we? There was a movie some time ago, um, The Natural. It was a uh, baseball story. And uh, the, the character, the, the lead character, the fellow who was the natural, uh, made a comment in the movie after a, a hiatus in his life where you don't know exactly what happened. Um, in the beginning of the movie, he starts out in just a promising career, looks great, he's headed for uh, the big leagues and so forth, and then something happens, and then it picks up again toward midlife, and he makes this comment somewhere along the line in the middle of the film, and he says, you know, life just doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to. Life's full of detours, isn't it? And so a lot of people are wondering, you know, if, if just if things could go just right, could I, could I be what I could be? Will I ever be fulfilled? Does, does life really have the potential to be wonderful, meaningful, fulfilling? People really struggle with those issues. And you look around and you see them struggling, though they may not admit it, they may not consciously be aware of it, they're wrestling because you see where they're investing their life. People are filling their life with stuff, filling their life with money. They are driven to have things, to make a statement that they're significant, they're important, their life is really fulfilled, they've reached their goals. They are they're searching after power, position, influence, fame, searching after fulfillment in, well, if I, if I just got married, I'd be fulfilled. Now, there's nothing wrong with marriage, but an inordinate emphasis on it is wrong. And there are lots of people chasing after spouses, chasing after husband, chasing after wife, because somehow I'll be fulfilled. Or there are families who, uh, who are desiring to have children, but for the wrong reason. There's an inordinate drive to have children because maybe in having the children we'll be fulfilled. Listen, don't get me wrong. This is, I love children. And God has given us the great privilege to participate with Him as we, as we do in the creation of new life and having children. He's told us, He says, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. But there are people, as you observe their life, who have an inordinate need and drive to fulfill their life via having children. Or having the, the latest clothes, or the latest car, or the newest car, or whatever it is. And behind it all is this, is this hunger, this drive to be fulfilled, to be meaningful, to have value, to be worthwhile. And you know... In the face of all of that, they bypass the Lord. There are Christians living their lives that way. And, and I'm here to tell you that what Paul is revealing to us here in this glorious first chapter, I'm here to tell you that when Jesus Christ gets a hold of your life, I mean, when He really gets a hold of your life, you're going to know fulfillment like you've never known it. You're going to know meaning like you never knew it. Your head is going to just spin. 
you're going to just be absolutely overwhelmed with a sense of how significant and important you are to Him. You're going to begin to understand that you have a very definite and very significant part in His eternal plan. And not only that, but that you're to the object of His love, His eternal blessings, and His promises. But only when Jesus gets a hold of your life. And there are a lot of Christians really struggling. Really struggling. Struggling for fulfillment. They don't quite know how to let Jesus get a hold of their life. One of the avenues is prayer. One of the avenues. But it's not the only avenue. It's not just prayer alone. I've had people tell me, well, I pray. I pray constantly. I read my Bible. But I still don't feel any closer. I still don't feel significant and worthwhile and fulfilled like you're describing. Keep on. Keep on. Keep on. Run hard after the Lord. Run hard after Him. Don't let go. Because God will get a hold of your life in a way that will absolutely turn you around. Jesus will be so real to you that you will just absolutely, absolutely be blown away. Jesus. It won't be an abstract thought. It won't be a, just a, a person on the page of the Bible. It won't be just someone you give lift service to. But the living Lord Jesus Christ, when he gets a hold of your life, will turn you around. But you got to get there. you got to run after him. <laughs> you got to say, I want you. That's true. I want you. You see, he's the answer to fulfillment, isn't he? He's the answer to all of our needs, isn't he? All of our problems, all of our emptiness, all of our questions. They all find their answer in Christ. Jesus Christ is the ground of our salvation. He is our hope. He is everything. That's why Paul, over and over, uses this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. And when you begin to know, you begin to realize that you are in Christ you will experience a dramatic and exciting change in your life. And you will experience fulfillment like you'd never known it was possible. Absolutely. Well, a lot of this has to do with believing God. Believing His promises. Hasn't He said that I'll set you free? That I'll meet all your needs? We have a need for fulfillment? A genuine need, a human need for fulfillment. And God wants to fill that place in your life in a very real way. You say, I thought we, we walk by faith, not by sight. We do. And it's by faith that the promise comes. 
Romans chapter 4, verse 16. It's by faith because you believe and you believe and you persevere after the Lord. Did Abraham find that out? Did Abraham's need get fulfilled by the Lord? Right? And it got to the place where Abraham just couldn't do anything, could he? He just kept walking after the Lord. He understood it. So God has promised us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul tells us this. My God shall supply all your needs. Is that what he said? Or did he say I supply some of your needs? Many of your needs? A few. The easy ones. A lot of people think that, huh? Well, God, you, you know, this, this is too hard for God. No, all your needs, according to what? His what? His riches. Is God rich? How rich is he? Infinitely. He owns everything, doesn't he? The whole earth belongs to him and everything it contains. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. All the gold and all the silver belongs to him. Everything belongs. God is rich. And he's promised to meet all of our needs according to his riches. Can I have a new Cadillac? Can I have a new Cadillac? <laughs> Ask for something a little bit more substantial than that. And you know what? God, because he has promised to meet all of our needs, he can be depended upon. God keeps his promises. Amen. Do you believe that? God keeps his promises. He's already promised us all these things that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks from verses uh, 3 up through verse 10. He's promised us forgiveness of sins. He's promised that we're washed in His blood. He's promised to reveal His will to us. He's told us that He chose us before the creation of the world. Those are awesome realities. And he's promised us an inheritance. God keeps His word. He's not like us. Men break their word, do they not? We're conditioned to that, aren't we? Sure. Countries, nations make promises and break them, do they not? Politicians make promises and break them, do they not? Advertisers make promises and break them. Right? Employers, employees make promises and break them. True? Husbands and wives make promises and break them, don't they? Parents and children make promises and break them. Friends and relatives make promises and break them. It's human to make promises and to break them. God's not like us. He keeps his promises. Even pastors and church members make promises and break them, as hard as that may be to believe. That actually does happen on occasion. But God keeps his promises. He is faithful to his word. And we can be thankful to him that every promise he makes, he keeps. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writes this. In Christ, we inherit every promise God ever made. That's an astounding statement. We inherit every promise God ever made. Every promise is yea and amen, Paul says. Isn't that wonderful? We'd be here for three days trying to enumerate all of God's promises, so we won't do that. I won't take that tack tonight with the message. <laughs> I know you're probably thankful. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. 
He who has promised is faithful. He is faithful. In Romans chapter 4, verse 21, God has the power to do what he had promised. God has the power to do it. Whatever he's promised, he can do it. And he can be relied on. You can depend upon him. In Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God doesn't lie. And his promises are from before the beginning of creation. That just overwhelms me. Every time I think of that, that absolutely overwhelms me. God's promises, his purpose, his plan, his choosing, has all been before the beginning of creation. That is an awesome, awesome reality. So God's word is true. He can be trusted. He keeps his word, keeps his promises. What about this promise of inheritance in verse 11? We're told by Paul in verse 11 that God has promised us a divine inheritance. Now, if you have a New International Version, the translation isn't quite clear, and let me explain to you. There's two ways that this passage can be translated. The verb in the New International Version says, In him we were also chosen. Were chosen. That's a passive verb. And the, 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 the format, the, the syntax of that particular word is such that you can interpret it one of two ways. You could interpret it one way, as the, as the uh, ter- interpreters have chosen to do it here. We have been chosen, or really we have been chosen as an inheritance. We are Christ's inheritance. And that's true. That's true uh, linguistically. It is true theologically. We are Christ's inheritance. But there's another way to translate that pas- passage, and it's an alternate translation. And you'll see it down in your notes. Not that we were chosen so much as an inheritance, but we have obtained an inheritance. I think that's a much better translation given the context of the passage because the context of the passage speaks to us about the promises of God and what God has done towards us. And so I think that it's a much better translation. And if we read it that way, you'll see uh, where he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the plan of him, that works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Let me just share a couple of things about this idea of this inheritance. To understand what he's talking about, you have to back up to verse 10. Last week, as we finished off our, our time, we looked at verse 10. Paul has said that God has revealed his will to us, the mystery of his will. Do you remember what the mystery of his will is that he's ultimately revealed to us? Quite simply, it's this, that God is restoring everything under Christ. He's bringing all of creation back to its harmony, back to unity under Christ. And God reveals that to us. He lets us know. Now, therein lies our inheritance. All all that's going to be restored under Christ, because we are in Christ, and Paul tells us in another place that we are co-heirs with Christ. All of that we are going to inherit. All of that. And so Paul goes on to tell us now that we've obtained this inheritance in verse 11. That inheritance, all that's going to be restored, starts with the church. 
It starts, God starts redeeming men. He starts restoring men and building his church. And then he works from there. Do you see how significant and important the church is to God's overall plan? And Paul lets us know this because it's the church. Those who are in Christ, who are the co-heirs, who are going to inherit all that God restores and puts in subjection to Christ. That's a... That's incredible, isn't it? That's mind-blowing. We're going to rule creation with Christ. We're going to reign with Christ. That takes my breath away. The very thought, I'm not ready. I can barely rule my checkbook. (laughs) That just, that takes my breath away. I'm going to rule with Christ. And rule over angels and rule over the world. It's too much, isn't it? But you see, it starts with the church. God, God is quite simply saying that men must be Christians. He's making Christians. He's restoring men. He's regenerating men and making them a special kind of a person, a special kind of a being called a Christian. And it's only the Christian that's in Christ. And it's only the Christian that has this inheritance. We're not just talking about Christian ethics. We're not talking about people who just practice Christianity in terms of its ethics. We're talking about people who have been regenerated, who have been born again, who are brand new creatures inside. And it's these people we're going to participate in this great inheritance that God has in store, that's reserved in heaven for us. Very important to know that. Very important to understand that. And Paul points to that in the next couple of verses, in verses 12 and 13. You notice there's a switch in pronouns. In verse 12, he uses the pronoun we, and then in verse 13, he switches and uses the pronoun you. He says, we also... And then it says, you, in the next verse, do you see that? You also. And what he's just pointing to is he's pointing to, the we refers to the Jews. We, we Jews, were predestined. We Jews also participate in this. And you also, the church at Ephesus and all the churches in 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 Asia Minor that this letter went to, were not made up of Jews, they were made up of Gentiles. If you know anything about the history of the Jew and Gentile relationship, boy, there was a wall right between them. These people needed to be reconciled. The Jews were prideful. They looked on the Gentiles as uh, dogs. The Gentiles, and especially in, in in person of the Greek, they looked on the Jews as being barbarians. The 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 Greeks were were proud of their of their philosophical heritage. They had Aristotle and Plato. Socrates. And so they looked at everybody else and the Jews as as barbarians. They weren't the great thinkers that the Greeks were. And so you see this incredible wall. And it's God's job to break down this wall of partition between man so that both Jew and Gentile alike can make up the church. And the Jew and the Gentile alike is a picture of mankind being restored. Do you remember we saw last week in Revelation chapter 5? Verses 9 and 10, God, Christ, is being praised in heaven because he has purchased by his blood men from every tongue 
every nation, every people, to be a special and holy people to God, a priesthood to God. Remember that? That's what he's, that's what he's doing. That's what God's doing. And Paul gives us visibility to this. Who's going to create this great inheritance? It's not depend, not, it doesn't depend on your background. It doesn't depend upon your religious affiliation. It doesn't depend upon how much money you got. What Paul is telling us, that God is redeeming men from every nation and every tongue, everywhere. God is not discriminating. And he's redeeming. And he's building his church. And it's his church that's going to inherit this eternal inheritance. Then he goes on to tell us, gives us two perspectives of this inheritance. He gives us the God's perspective on one hand, and then he gives us a human perspective of just how we enter into this inheritance. I want to point these out because they're important. He tells us in verse 11 and verse 12, there are three things from God's point of view. Now remember, he's describing our inheritance and how we gain it, how we enter it from his point of view. Three elements. The first one is predestination. We've been predestined. Now remember, this is from God's point of view. Before the beginning of the world, before the beginning of time, we've been predestined. The second element has to do with his power. And the third element has to do with his preeminence. We've been predestined. As Christians, we are what we are because of how God has chosen to make us. That's it. We are who we are and what we are because of what God and how God has chosen to make us. That's just quite simply the predestination. Remember, this is from God's point of view. It's not from our point of view. He goes on and he says in verse 11 that God is working, that he works this according to his good pleasure. Do you see that? God works. The, re- the Greek word behind that English word work is the word energao, which means energize. God is energizing. He has a plan, and he energizes his plan. Whatever he thinks up, he energizes it. He makes it happen. God is working, Paul says in that passage. Listen to this. According to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's working. He's predestined. And he's working out his plan. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this. He says, I am confident of this one thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. He who is energizing you will continue to energize you to the point of completion. Isn't that great? Isn't that nice to know? Single me out. I'm sure glad he did. Amen. I'm sure glad he's chosen to reveal his will to me, to tell me what he's up to, tell me what he's doing. I get to cooperate. I get to participate. I get to rejoice along the way. And I get to experience fulfillment. I get to experience meaning and purpose in my life that has eternal significance and value. It's not just going to pass off of this world. I'm involved in things that are going to last for eternity. 
forever. God has put them into my hands, and I get to participate with them. Beloved, there, there isn't anything more exciting than that. There isn't anything more fulfilling than that. The last thing he talks about is preeminence in verse 12. Why is God predestined? Why is he working according to his power? Why is he energizing his plan? He tells us, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. Nobody else's. God desires creatures. Listen to this. God desires creatures that proclaim and display his glory. And you know what? To get those creatures, he has to remake us. He's got to recreate us. Before he did, did we proclaim his glory? No. Did we display it? Hardly. And there's some situations in which even after we're recreated, we don't exactly proclaim his glory, nor do we display it. All the more reason why we need to get serious about who he is and what he's doing. He desires his creation to bring him glory, to reflect glory back to him as Christ did. And we press on to that goal. We strive for excellence toward that goal. Lord, I want my life to bring you glory today. I set my will to that purpose, to bring you glory, to the praise of your glory. And sometimes it takes a real kick in the pants to get us moving, doesn't it? Because we so often are so inward-looking, so selfish. We don't understand how rich and how wonderful he is and how deserving he is to receive glory from us. We don't understand it. We don't have a grasp of it, a sufficient enough grasp. Salvation is always presented in the scriptures from God's side. As you read the scriptures, you look at it, you see, yeah, God, salvation is always presented from his side. He's always reaching out. He's always initiating. He's always working. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know why that is? Quite simply, in order that he receives full credit. Is that an okay thing? Can God get all the credit? Oh, yeah. We nod our head and we say, yeah, that's good. But sometimes we have a difficult time with that. We think, is God on some kind of ego trip? I mean, he's got to have all this glory. What's the deal? We have a difficult time with him having all the glory. Now, we may not cognitively think that way, but, but down deep inside, some of us really struggle with that. And certainly the people in the world do. God is deserving, isn't he? He's deserving. Mankind, beloved, when, when, we, when we look with that kind of an attitude, that just reflects that we are so humanly oriented that we project onto him our own human limitations. We look at people who seem to be striving for glory and we, we put them down, don't we? We say, oh, look at that guy. He's just, he's just a show-off. He's boasting. He's, he's trying to get all, he's hogging all the glory. He's a, we call him in the basketball court, he's a gunner. Look at that guy gun. You know, it's a derisive kind of, a, of attitude. And we think, well, God wants all his glory. You know, is there something wrong with him? No. We just don't understand his majesty. We don't understand his beauty. We don't understand his precious 
wonderful, glorious nature. We don't understand him. If we did, if we'd have a, just an inkling, we'd be on our face the whole time here. I mean, we'd be on our face. When the worship team would come back, we would say, oh, God, God. And we'd be singing out to him. We'd be blasting our lungs to him. You ever go to an athletic contest and get excited? I went to a Laker game a few weeks ago. Watched the Lakers lose to Detroit. <laughs> Last 15 seconds, they lost the game. The whole forum was going nuts, screaming, going crazy. When Kareem would make a sky hook, the whole place went bananas. And I thought, why can't we do this in church? Why can't we do this? I mean, why can't we just say, God, hallelujah! Well, it's just kind of out of place, I guess. <laughs> kind of out of place. Men seek glory for their own sinful, selfish motives, don't they? Men don't deserve glory. What do they deserve? Condemnation. We deserve hell. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a, that's a little strong, don't you think? No. That's what the Bible says. We deserve hell. You say, well, I don't run around looking for glory. I don't run around looking for recognition. Oh? Oh? You ever have your feelings hurt when someone doesn't notice you? Let's say you've been involved in ministry, and you've been, oh, you've been serving faithfully. Whoo, you've been there. You've been there. You've been doing your best. You've been putting in the time, putting in the effort, the energy. You've been pouring it out in God's service. And no one notices. How do you feel? Do you find yourself getting a little resentful? A little bitter? A little judgmental of others who may be getting a little recognition and you're not getting it? Oh. oh that tells you something, doesn't it? What are you looking for? Glory. What ought to be your attitude? Lord, I sure want it, but I don't need it. Lord, I admit I want it. Forgive me. But I fully admit I don't need it. All I need is you. And what you choose to provide for me at any given moment. Lord, forgive me for my attitude. Would you agree with me? Would you really? Some would take issue with me, I know. But that's, I think that's the truth. I think that men seek glory, and they seek it to take it from God. Look at me, God. Look how good I've done for you. Look how faithful I am, and these others aren't nearly as faithful. But I'm there. <laughs> how much more wonderful it would be when we're tempted to think that and to strive that way, that we would say, Lord, Lord, thank you that no one's recognizing. Thank you that no one sees. Thank you that I'm assured that I'm storing up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. Because all of it's going to burn here. That's right. That's right. Didn't I say that in the Bible someplace? Mm -hmm. God seeks glory for the right motives and because he deserves it. And we should give him all the praise and all the glory. And that's what Paul says. To the praise of his glory. 
to the praise of His glory. Not ours! And so from God's point of view, Paul gives us some understanding of, of how we enter into this inheritance. God has predestined us. He's working it out. And He's working it out to the praise of His glory. Isn't that wonderful? That relieves us of that responsibility, doesn't it? But now let's look at it from a human perspective. Paul gives us visibility from a human perspective. There are two elements. He says this. In verse um, 12, In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might for the praise of His glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. So hearing is important from a human perspective. The gospel of your salvation and having believed... Two key elements, hearing and believing from a human perspective. From our point of view, we heard and we believed. Now, there's always a tension between God's sovereignty and man's will. We've talked about this. In fact, I gave you a word to describe those two complementary truths that are irreconcilable. That word is antinomy. And by the way, I need to say something, too. There are some people who every issue they can't reconcile in the Bible, they're labeling an antinomy. Not everything is an antinomy. <laughs> I, I just amazing. Never thought that that would happen, but, it, you know, you just, whatever can happen will happen, it's obvious. Not every difficult issue is an antinomy, just only some. And this one issue, the, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, man's will, is an antinomous issue. You cannot resolve it. You've got to live in the tension of it. On the one hand, Paul has given us God's point of view. We've been predestined. But on the other hand, Paul says, you believed when you heard. He shows us our part, our responsibility. Both of them are there in that passage. We inherit this great inheritance because God has predestined that we should, but we participate. We believed. And it's incumbent upon us to believe, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I heard an interesting illustration of this dilemma, which was maybe helpful to you, this dilemma of antinomy. Imagine, if you will, on your way to heaven, you see this sign, sign on the front door of heaven, and it says, whoever, whoever will may come. Okay? And so you enter in. And then you get on the inside of heaven and you close the door and you look back at the door and on the back side of the door is printed chosen from before the beginning of creation. You see them both. That really helped me. You see, from our point of view, we have a responsibility. From our point of view, we've got to hear the gospel. From our point of view, the gospel must be preached. From our point of view, we've got to hear it. You've got to believe it. But from God's point of view, he's chosen. And you can't reconcile the two. You can't reconcile. Faith is man's response. Faith is man's response to God's elective purpose. God's choice of man is election. And man's choice of God is faith. Complex. But that's what the Bible's been teaching us. In election, God gives his promises, and by faith, man receives them. Romans 4.16, the promise 
comes by faith. It's realized by faith as we trust God. Let me conclude. I want to share with you about this idea of how we can be confident, how we can be sure that we have an inheritance. Paul says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. How can we be sure? How can we be sure we have this inheritance? We're looking all the time for assurances, aren't we? I mean, when you buy something, you want a guarantee? You buy a refrigerator, would you buy it without a guarantee? No. You buy a car, would you buy it without a guarantee? No. We want warranties, guarantees. We want bonds. We're surety bonds. We demand people take oaths. We have a basic insecurity about things. You know that? God understands that. And so he gives us a guarantee. He seals us in the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it means to be sealed in the Holy Spirit? Four things. Four things. The, the whole idea of sealing, Paul picks up. It was an ancient Near Eastern practice. Most of you are probably familiar with it. On an important document that a king or one of the nobles of a, of a country or a government would, would uh, dispense, this document, in order for it to be authentic or authoritative, had to be sealed. And so they would, as they finish the document and they fold it up or they roll it up, they would pour some hot wax uh, on the edge and then they would press what they would call a signet ring into the wax and that would be a seal. And that sealed that document. It made that document authoritative. It made it authentic. It, 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 it made the document secure. And so Paul picks up this language of sealing and he applies it to to what God does when you become a Christian. God puts his Holy Spirit in us and seals us. Seals us. Let me give you four words or four elements that a sealing signifies. The first one, it's a sign of security. A sign of security. Remember when Daniel was thrown in the, in the lion's den? If you read the account... Uh, the, the, the stone was rolled over the opening to the den and it was sealed with the seal of the king. No one could open that lion's den. No one. And if you did, you were in big trouble. It was sealed with the seal of the king. It was secure. It was inviolable. You couldn't violate that seal. You remember when Jesus was entombed? And the, the, the Pharisees went, the Jewish leaders went to the Roman government and said, you know, we're afraid they're going to steal the body, so you put it, secure the tomb, put a guard there. And so they rolled the stone, and then they sealed the tomb with the seal of Rome. Nobody but a higher power than the Roman government could open that tomb. And by the way, a higher power did open that tomb. But you see, the, the, the seal meant security. It meant inviolability. You couldn't violate that. And for us, when we understand sealing, we're secure. We've been sealed. We're inviolable with God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? We're infinitely, infinitely sealed by the Holy Spirit. The second 
element is the seal is a sign of authenticity. The person who has been sealed by the Holy Spirit, in effect, God says, this one is an authentic child of mine, and this one is an authentic member of my kingdom. They're authenticated by the seal of the Holy Spirit. Another sign is the sign of ownership. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah buys a, a piece of land and goes through this deal and, and then has the deed sealed. And it showed that Jeremiah was the legal owner now. And we're sealed and, and we, we belong to God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, we've been purchased with a price. We're not our own anymore. We belong to him. We've been sealed and the fourth element is authority. We have authority. We have authority from God. When there was a document that was sealed by the king, it demonstrated that the one who possessed that document had the authority to carry out that which the document spoke to. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have authority, authority by that same Spirit the authority of God. We have the authority to preach the word. We have the authority to defend the word. We have the authority to pray for the sick. We have the authority to cast out demons. We have the authority to raise the dead. That's pretty awesome authority. Would you agree with me? How do we get all this? We've been sealed. And this sealing is an indication of those four elements you say, well, well, I understand what you're saying, but how can, I, how, can I, how can I feel secure? Because the Holy Spirit who lives in you, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, testifies with your spirit. He confirms this to you. He lets you know. As you read this, you gain some understanding, but He lets you know. And Paul says He's our... He's our guarantee. He's our deposit. The Greek word is arabon. He's our down payment. Not only are we sealed, but he is our down payment. Him, the Spirit of God. That word also has been translated engagement ring. It's the same word to describe an engagement ring. He's our engagement ring. We're the bride of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He's not only our deposit, He's our engagement ring. And one day there's going to be a marriage feast, a wedding, the church and the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And the Holy Spirit is the wedding ring. It's the engagement ring that guarantees that we will be in that wedding. And the bride of Christ will never be neglected and never be forsaken. Beloved, we have an inheritance it is unfading and reserved in heaven for us. And Paul concludes and he says, to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we glorify your name. We hallow your name. You are great and awesome. 
You are mighty and glorious. You are worthy of all of our praise and our adoration and our worship. We bless your name tonight. We thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the inheritance that you have reserved for us. Father, strengthen us in the face of any insecurity we might feel that we would be absolutely confident of your rich grace towards us. And Lord, I pray that each of us would break forth with a new understanding and a new attitude about who you are, that our service to you and in your name would be faithful, diligent, glorious. Father, we'd be a thankful people, thankful that, that we're in Christ and that we have the riches of your great grace. Lord, help us to see how in that relationship we are fulfilled. We have fulfillment. We are worthwhile. Our lives do have great meaning and purpose and direction. Father, we say thank you. We say thank you tonight. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Papa. Thank you, our gracious, gracious Heavenly Father. Jesus, we exalt your name. We lift up the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise your name. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. And Holy Spirit, thank you for sealing us. Thank you for securing for us God's great plan and purpose. We bless your name tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.